we're going to be today continuing in a series that we're doing on prayer. Called it A People of Prayer, The People of Prayer. Um, because this year, our emphasis throughout the whole year is learning to pray. And so we want to be humble in our acknowledging that prayer is difficult and that most of us, if we're like really vulnerable and honest, we stink at prayer. I'm one of them. Uh, we need then the conviction that that's not okay. Um, am I a little tinny? I feel like I'm pretty tinny right now. Okay, just a little. Um, second, we need the conviction that it's not okay to remain in a place of not caring about not being good at prayer, at living lives filled with prayer. And then third, uh, the courage to actually disrupt the status quo in our lives uh, with focused, concerted effort towards emphasizing prayer. And so we're doing a series to try and draw on various scriptures that'll hopefully stir us toward becoming people of prayer. Today we're going to be in Psalm 32. Would you stand with me as we read this, the entire psalm together? I will read this and then we will pray. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Selah. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give you counsel. Do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle or else it will not come near you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts in the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray. Father, we ask along with the psalmist that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Any places in us this morning that are out of alignment with you, we surrender, we open ourselves to you, we give you full permission to re-knit together our hearts wholly that we would have hearts that are set apart to you, that want you, that want your presence. And so please, Holy Spirit, open our eyes more and more to Jesus. Teach us to pray this morning, specifically through the act of, of radical openness to you and to one another with our fears, our weaknesses, our sins. And may you bring healing to us this morning. Amen. All right, you can take a seat. Um, so when I was, when I was five years old, one of my first memories 
was playing out in this big courtyard area in between apartment complexes, the various complexes of our apartment. And me and my best friend Arnold were uh, throwing pea gravel at each other. And, you know, those tiny little rocks. And we were throwing them. And the challenge was who could hit one another. And eventually, being the competitor that I am, and realizing that it was going to be near impossible to actually hit one another, I took a handful and, you know, from like me to Naren, and I just threw it as hard as I could. And yeesh, the narrative tension is building. And so as I threw and felt the joy of victory rise up in me, suddenly the panic of seeing him pelted with rocks break down into tears and screaming and run home. The panic rose up in me. I also ran home and shut the blinds behind me at the sliding door. My mom's sitting there. It's like 5 o'clock in the evening. And I turn off all the lights. It's, Mom, I'm tired. <laughs> she looks at me like, what in the world did you do? And actually, what started to rise up in me was, oh, she's on to me. What's the one thing that would convince her I'm being well-behaved? Mom, I need to take a bath. The thing that I fought with her every time I needed to do. And so she looks at me even more strangely and says, okay, and walks me in, and I'm in there taking a bath, being a well-behaved little boy. My mom goes out to answer a knock at the door, and uh, Arnold's mom had come over with Arnold and explained what happened. She walks in, and the shame covers me. I'd been caught but what I had done in the follow-through from that experience is indicative of what we do when we cross the threshold from what is maybe innocent foolishness, throwing a rock, playing a game, into crossing a line that actually begins to harm people around us, to harm even ourselves, or even to uh, sin against God. The panic ensues, and we start the tactics of self-protection, shame, and hiding, right? One of the reasons that I think we struggle to pray is because we live with the blinds closed, taking a bath, trying to behave ourselves with what we think God really wants from us, the really difficult acts of obedience that make up for our misbehavior or our disobedience. But really simply, we, we struggle to pray because we hide. And we know that we cannot hide from the one who is all-knowing. And so we actually start hiding from even parts of ourselves. We feel this disconnect. We hide from community. And we're just too well made by God to be able to trick ourselves. And so what I want to do this morning is see in Psalm 32 the surprising joy of forgiveness. That confession built up with all of the intimidating elements of being honest with our, our sins, our personal darkness, or the evil that somehow comes up within us sometimes. All the fear that's surrounding that actually lies to us, especially as followers of Jesus. Because when we step out into the vulnerability and the precipice of losing social control of our, of our, um, of our image 
of our status in the community and spiritually before God, what we actually find is it's the key and the source to joy. So, um, it's all around us. It's all around us. There's a surprise waiting for us uh, when we run away from the manipulation of image and the exhaustion of trying to pretend we're someone we're not. The surprise of confession. Let's look at the first couple of verses again here. Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is, the pers- is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. There are some assumptions baked into Scripture and into the psalmist's assumptions and experience. That is that we were created by God to be whole. We were created to be integrated with ourselves, the various aspects, physically in our bodies, mentally and emotionally in our minds and our hearts, spiritually in our connectedness to God, socially in our connectedness to one another. That wholeness brings a state of joy and peace, imperfectly in this broken world, but truthfully. But those things can only come, joy and peace, to the degree that we embrace a kind of wholeness that requires that we are known. We are truly known only when all of us are known. That includes the parts and places in our life that we feel are not worthy of being shared, that we're afraid of sharing, whether it's just embarrassment over weakness or guilt and shame over actual evil. Confession is how we walk out of darkness and into light with one another and with God. And, right, the complexity is God already knows. There's nothing that's hidden from his sight, Scripture says. There's nothing that we would tell him that he didn't already know. But we step into the relational place where we know God knows and we know he knows and we can get on with it. God calls us to acknowledge our sin as what's historically and theologically called confession. Confession is simply the act of refusing to remain isolated in the privacy of our own lives, but living our lives as known members of community inside and out. It's not only sharing in our joys and needs, but also our transgressions, our wronging of others, our falling short of what God created us Four, the the ways that we don't do what we ought to do even. The condition that compels this behavior is what Scripture calls sin, okay? It's a whole lot of assumptions and baggage around this term sin. We tend to think of sin as a moral problem. First, that it's a moral problem, but sin is only a moral problem because it's first a relational problem. It's not just that there's a moral purity that we were created for, It's that we were created by God for relationship with him. And his law creates the conditions for that relationship to thrive with one another and with God. The story of scripture shows us that God created the world very good. Without evil, without brokenness or sin, but our first parents believed a lie from the serpent that they could redefine good and evil and live autonomously 
without God self-sufficiently. Not realizing that God himself is the very source of our life. Thus, the only state that can exist apart from God is the state called death. Death is not merely physical death. It's all the things that come and afflict us, the evil in the world, that we look and we see uh, 7% of Los Angeles's budget was set aside for abuse of authority and payment in lawsuits. Even the world around us knows that evil and darkness needs to be accounted for. So we fall sick and our bodies are ill and the world itself, Romans 8 says, groans under the weight of this death that is here due to the broken fracturing of our communion with God. And the story of Jesus coming into the world is to reconnect and bring renewal and recreate from within this broken darkness a new heavens and a new earth. And the invitation to everyone is to walk out from that old, dark decay and into the light of God's presence in Jesus. And then for all those who do that, there's a people who are trying to do that together called the church. And it's the new place where we learn to live in life and light and flee from the ways of death and darkness. So, sin, put really simply, One of my favorite definitions is a refused relationship with God that spills over into a wrong relationship with others. A refused relationship with God that spills over into a wrong relationship with others. It's helpful because it prevents us from treating sin merely as immoral behavior to be corrected and gets us to the root cause of the disease, which is separation and alienation from God. We're just used to doing life on our own without God in the picture. And discipleship to Jesus is learning to live life with God for the sake of the world. So, what do we do about this? Well, the psalmist tells us, I love how realistic God is. There's something surprising. God allows the psalmist to write a song contained in Scripture that describes the psalmist's experience, one of the very authors of Scripture, of sinning, of turning away from God. And then what happens when he turns back to God and what he experiences? God is so realistic about the human condition, and even as one of his people, how sin is still a reality in our life, okay? Here's the thing. Much of our experience as Christians is not so much that God is withholding himself from us, but that we withhold ourselves from him. Confession is how we stop withholding ourselves from him. And I want to I just ease the tension that comes up whenever we talk about confession in the gathered people. God is not angry at you. Now, in Jesus Christ, he is pursuing you. He desires you. There may be discipline as a father for your good that he has for us. I'm a father. There are things that with 
with tears in my eyes, I know I need to do to my children for the sake of disciplining them into healthy human beings that is not out of some like joyful, angry place, like you really deserve this, right? I may be upset with them, but it's not the kind of trigger finger anger that I think we envision God having towards us. Um, God desires you in the kind of way that a father desires his child to be delivered from peril. And confession is how we participate with that desire. The reward is joy. Can you believe that? That the thing we're really afraid of, being known, this just bowls me over. Being really known by God yields joy. It's freedom. And what we receive from God isn't a scowl, but Him actually singing over us. You see that? I think it's verse 8 or 9, maybe 10, maybe 11. It's somewhere in there. He surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. If I have one goal this morning, it's simply that we would all walk out of here with the conviction in our bellies that fundamental to our following Jesus is being authentic enough to confess the ways we fail to follow Jesus every day with God, and at least weekly with God's people, okay? Ideally, more frequently than that. Like, let's just be people that are so free. We're like, oh my gosh, I failed in this way, but man, God is good and kind and forgiving. Let me say that again. Our conviction in our bellies that every day as we approach God first thing in the morning in prayer and say, Lord, thank you for your mercy today, that you are kind and good is a reflective awareness of needing to give over the parts of us to him that have fallen short, that could be categorized as sin. Every day. It's a fundamental element of discipleship that the followers of Jesus in Scripture assumed was a practice. And I think that one of the reasons that the church broadly in our day and in each of our individual discipleship is so weak and feeble, is because we don't do it. Look at verses 3 and 4. I have it somewhere here. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle, from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. First two verses, psalmist opens up for us the reward of confession, the joy of knowing God in Jesus forgives all who come to him with vulnerable, authentic honesty and confession. The only other option is to remain in hiding. And here, the psalmist writes 
telling us that in this song that sin is dangerous because it kills. The progression of what he's describing, when I was silent, when I didn't walk before you in confession and honesty, my bones became brittle from my groaning all the day long. So there are, there are two options for us. We can either speak out the ways that we have fallen short to God and to community in confession, or we can groan in keeping our sin private. What scripture says is remaining in darkness. I think that many of us are used to the darkness and think that's what Christianity is. That we just put up with the bones that are growing brittle. And we think that one day God's just going to save us, not realizing that he's given us tools and disciplines to be able to actually have joy and vitality in our life here and now. There is an internal cost to hiding. That is that sin, when it isolates us, lords over us the effects of death. There are a few ways that sin kills that Scripture speaks of. The first one is sin corrupts the goodness that God created. Theologian Cornelius Plantinga writes, Sin is a parasite, an uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance. Nothing about sin is its own. All its power, persistence, and plausibility are stolen goods. Sin is not really an entity, but a spoiler of entities. Not an organism, but a leech on organisms. Sin does not build shalom, that's God's vision of peace, flourishing. It vandalizes it. We find life in prayerful confession because our lives are cleansed of the corruption that sin breeds when we remain in, in it in darkness. It literally breaks apart the integrity of our interiority. It, it actually starts to, to parasitically break us down on the inside. Second, sin isolates us from the community God made us for. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. Sin always happens in darkness because sin is always us turning away from the light of fellowship with God into the autonomy of self-oriented life. So it isolates us by definition. We find life in prayerful confession because we're turning back into communion with God and one another. That's why 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says, when we confess our sins, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. There cannot be real deep fellowship in the church of the quality that God envisions and what we see in the New Testament without the discipline together, communally, of shared confession. That's why in our discipleship groups that Brennan told you about earlier, we ask three questions every week. 
Those three questions are, has God been real to you this week? We want to not just follow an ideology, but we actually want to experience God. And second question is, how have the disciplines been, especially prayer and scripture reading, because those are fundamental to the way that we experience God in our reality. It orients our heart and mind towards him each day. But then the third question is, how have you failed to love God and people? That's, that's this, in action, lived out. And it's not to kind of rub our noses in our failings. It's to free us and to sweep us into fellowship with God and one another. We find life in prayerful confession because we experience the light of communion. So sin is a parasite. It corrupts the goodness that God created in our lives. It isolates us from community that God made us for. And third, sin multiplies to overwhelm our control of it. It's the third way that sin kills, brings death. Sin unconfessed always leads to some form of bondage and addiction. Always. Sin, by its very nature, cannot remain alone. We're used to that thing where we do something that's enjoyable, that we like, and then we want more of it, and we find that more of it is needed in order to experience the same thing, degree of joy or pleasure or whatever it was that we experienced before, and then we need more of it, and pretty soon we can't imagine living without it. God made us that way so that we would actually attach to his glory like that. That we would taste his beauty and goodness and love and want more and more and more. But sin takes that mechanism and curves it onto things of the world that will always ensnare us. St. Augustine, the church father from Africa, early in the 300s wrote, I was bound not by an iron imposed by anyone else, but by the iron of my own choice. He's speaking of addiction to sexual sin. The enemy had a grip on my will and so made a chain for me to hold me prisoner. The consequence of a distorted will is passion. By servitude to passion, habit is formed. And habit to which there is no resistance becomes necessity. By these links connected to one another... A harsh bondage held me under restraint. You see, sin kills in part because it multiplies. It brings us into hiding. It corrupts something good. And then we need more of it. Sin is not satisfied with the little part of us that we think we are giving it when the sin seems small and innocent. Sin will always take more of us than we are bargaining with because sin multiplies until it overtakes. We find life, though, in prayerful confession because we experience the freedom from bondage that's only found in Jesus and among Jesus' people in the church. When I met Jesus in college, I was addicted to pornography like deep shameful addiction, like things that I couldn't say right now that describe just how dark and evil the kind of pornography that I was addicted to are. And I knew it. Before I knew Jesus, I remember laying on my bed one night crying, God, if you're real, you have to free me. And so a part of me meeting Jesus was me opening up about what the heck do I do now about this porn addiction and the wisdom of 
someone telling me early on, you need to share that with a few brothers every time. And so I learned that in the addiction to pornography, the only solution was radical confession. And that's not to say that every addiction is simply solved by that. But for me, it broke the addiction and brought healing. That's the power that we experience in the light of God's love and the transformation of being satisfied in Him with brothers and sisters who can walk alongside of us in mercy, compassion, and grace. So, my simple invitation this morning is to help us see that the alternative to confession and walking in the light is succumbing to some degree of darkness and death in our life and our discipleship to Jesus, leaving reward and joy that we could have now on the table and settling. And so, let's walk in radical vulnerability together. Two ways that we try and protect ourselves, okay? Two things that I think keep us from confession practically. Um, some of us believe that sin is too bad to acknowledge. Others of us believe sin isn't bad enough to acknowledge. The first one, some of us believe sin is too bad to acknowledge. We implicitly believe that God is so angry with our sin that he must be tiptoed around. That if we just told people in the church what we've done, their jaws would hit the floor, their eyes would start looking down, like shaming us visually, and then they'd just say something like, well, I guess I'll pray for you. Because they haven't done it, and we haven't heard from them, their darkness, their temptations, their brokenness. So when someone confesses to us, it gives us that honor, whether we're in a discipleship group, you're on the prayer team and someone comes up to you, we're just sitting here on a Sunday, we're going out to coffee, we say, how have you been, what's God been teaching you, and they open up the confession of something that's sin. Here are a few things. Don't act shocked. In fact, if we feel shock, it's because we've got our eyes off of ourselves. Paul himself said in Ephesians, I'm the worst of sinners. You're the worst sinner that you know, if you see yourself rightly. Because you see the most sin of anyone that you know, and you see the dark roots of it. Your sin was so bad that Jesus had to die in order to save you back into the presence of God, right? Sin is bad. We shouldn't be shocked when someone comes to us confessing anything. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be grieved. We shouldn't feel sorrow. Secondly, we get to not downplay their sin. The world comforts by saying it's not that bad. We'll get to that in a second. Jesus, the Son of God, came on a rescue mission to save that person from that thing that they're laying down. We should feel the weight of darkness and not seek to remove the conviction that the Holy Spirit has brought. Okay? Thirdly, we get to speak the gospel over people. 
that God's disposition is one of mercy and eager reception into his presence, and that the blood of Jesus has cleansed them in their confession. It's that simple. Don't feel like you need to counsel someone into a new way of living. Receive it unshocked. Don't minimize it. And speak Jesus over one another. When Scripture calls us the priesthood of all believers, that's one of the functions that we have, is to actually speak what we know to be true but remains unspoken over us when we read it in Scripture so that we can make it real to each other. God's forgiveness of one another. And if you haven't received Jesus, if you haven't made the decision to follow Him, this is the invitation. Into the freedom from the kind of perception management and hiding that's bondage, addiction that seeks to completely overtake us, into the light of being loved by God into a community that is real. So, if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't made the decision to follow him, you can go up to his member on the prayer team and just say, I, I, I want Jesus to show himself to me. I want to follow Jesus. Would you pray over me in that? Some of us believe sin is too bad to acknowledge. Others of us, though, believe sin isn't bad enough to acknowledge. This comes from the kind of postmodern uh, ethos that we live in. Modernism in the early 20th century told us that progress can be made if we just band together and assert ourselves. And then two world wars in the bloodiest century ever opened our eyes. Okay? There's not hope in progress together in some shared vision. So postmodernism told us, well, everything is relative now. So what you desire or what you think is your truth. You could see how when we read God's word and we hear in scripture, he says, well, here are a handful of things to do and a handful of things not to do. That hits us in our bellies that have been shaped by a world that says what's good is what's in you. And God says, no, what's good is how I created you. And we have conflict. And so what I see oftentimes in Scripture is we hold God's word at arm's length and say, there has to be some other meaning to, for instance, God's sexual ethic. Okay? That sex was created for marriage between husband and wife and lifelong covenant commitment. We say, well, it's got to be more nuanced than that. Um, it might be about lying and deception. It might be um, about greed and not being generous. Rather than agreeing with a wise, nuanced embrace of God's word in spite of how we feel, and oftentimes that's it. We hear God's word and we feel, I don't really like that. It's because we've been formed and shaped to think that Breaking from tradition and breaking from an external set of truth is what is good. All the Disney movies tell us that these days. Now, there's some goodness in the importance of a particular individual, not at the expense of tradition, but embracing them together. Okay, All of that, both we're too bad to confess our sins and sin isn't bad enough to confess our sins. Both of those extremes are foolishness. Okay. So, what do we do? Joy comes through confession, not perfection. 
the next couple of verses as we round this out say, then I acknowledged my sin to you. Right? There it is. There it is. Confession. And, you did, and I did not conceal my iniquity. The psalmist equates not being open about iniquity with hiding it. Concealing it. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You are promised forgiveness in Jesus. Promised it. Don't assume it, though. What I mean by that is, don't assume, well, God gave Jesus, so I'm forgiven without actually going through the process of confession that I could receive God speaking forgiveness over me. Verse 6, therefore let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will not reach me. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. Pastor Eugene Peterson, the late Pastor Eugene Peterson, writes, God does not deal with sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ or mice in the attic. God does not deal with sin by amputation as if it were a gangrenous leg leaving us crippled, holiness on a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving us. And when he forgives us, there is more of us, not less. God wants to make you more whole as a human being as you walk out into the light, as you lay down the things that seek to decay you, that seek to overwhelm you, and you come out the other side of confession, that frightful place of being known, more loved, more valued, more whole and solid in your sense of who you are before God and the community. And guess what? It might be a key to other people outside of the church seeing the glory and beauty of Jesus in our day. In a world where image management rules and we can't even confess and be honest about something because we'll be canceled, we'll be stifled, we'll be ridiculed, maybe a key to our neighbors actually thinking Jesus is relevant for their life is our capacity to be honest about our sin, especially when it's against them. Okay. I told you like a month ago, um, I coached my younger son's flag football team, and I was so mad at the referee, I was saying things that I needed to acknowledge to him afterwards. Um, and so I walked up to him, and I had to say, tail between my legs, shame in my heart. I didn't tell you this last time, and I realized it afterwards. I was wearing my With God for the World TCLA <laughs> shirt, and it wasn't with a jacket over it. So I'm like wearing this thing like, are you kidding me? That wasn't an interception. My guy caught it. No, that's a terrible call. Take off the glasses, Rev. Or like, put on the glasses. And I had to say, hey, man. And as I'm walking up to him, he's looking at me. And I could tell it was like with the critical distance to protect himself from further ridicule. And as I surprised him by just saying, man, I just need to confess to you. I am so sorry. I was being a, and I used a word that I won't say publicly in church, mean, and I, I need to apologize to you because that's the last reputation that I want to give to you um, as a coach in the league. I really appreciate you. I know you're doing the best that you can. Will you forgive me for that? 
and actually asking, will you forgive? When we sin against someone, we need to we ask them for their forgiveness because that's a part of this reconciliation thing. And instantly, warmth and a smile. And he like leaned forward and hugged me. Now, I don't know where that guy is with Jesus. But what that does is it opens people to seeing there is something different about us as Christ followers. No matter how high our social status might be, none of us are above anyone else such that we cannot go to them, must go to them if we follow Jesus and say, hey, I wronged you. Will you forgive me for that? And I need to make it right. So we confess sin together. We confess sin out in the world. And we get to give glory to Jesus as we humble ourselves and receive life in his presence. Amen? What we will discover is that prayer starts flooding our